Our gospel lesson is from Luke, the fourth chapter. Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to be turned into a loaf of bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. And the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their glory and their authority, for it has been given over to me. And I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you. And all their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed until an opportune time. This is the word of the I think it's been a difficult way. What do y'all think? I can't remember a time with more gray skies, more rainy, icy, miserable weather. Now, I confess, I like weather. I like it when it snows. I mean, really snows. Four inches is not snow. Where we live, four inches is just dust. I like enough snow where everybody says, Ooh. We'll just stay home today. That is the good weather. I like the way the hillsides look when there aren't any leaves and you can look up and you can see all that corduroy effect of the hills. It can be good for the mind, the body, and the soul. I like weather. But I don't like this one. Yeah. Ten inches of rain in January. They say it's the most we've ever had, and I believe it. There are those who would like to link the season of Lent that we're starting. This season that leads us to Easter with all the foul things I've already said about Lent. Lent is a time for remembering. It is not just a time, though, when we mourn the bad or the things we fail to do. It's not just a time when we're sad and mournful and morose. So it's not just a time of cloudy skies and falling rain, uninspired. Lent really is not intended to make us feel like that, in spite of all what you may have heard. It is a time for introspection, of course. It is a time for remembering. It is a time for repentance and changing attitudes. It's a time to draw closer to God and learn to practice some of those spiritual disciplines that we all seem to want to run from. But Lent is never meant to drive us down and depress us 
and make everything dull and gray. It's not supposed to affect our spirits in ways that are negative. It's meant to enliven us. One person has called in a time of powerful tears, and we often think of tears as being bad. But the truth is, tears are not always negative. Oftentimes they are tears of joy. And so Lent is also a time of holy astonishment, joy, learning, hearing again of this radical love that God has for us. The 40 days of Lent, of course, draws its inception from the passage of Scripture I read for you today. Jesus goes into the wilderness for how long? 40 days. And there, when he gets there, of course, he is tempted and he does not eat, we are told. But 40 days in biblical terms is a very common thing. If you remember back to Noah and the flood, we all remember that from January. Um, well, not exactly. Uh, it was 40 days and 40 nights. The children of Israel wander after they get out of Egypt for how long? 40 years. 40 is sort of a whole number time. It's big time. And so the church down through the centuries have kind of gathered that idea and used 40 as a symbolic kind of number. And that's what Lent is. It's meant to be a time of clarification, preparation. It's meant to be a time when we learn who we are as Christian people in the world and ask again the question, what does God want from us and for us? And what do we need to be doing for a world that does not know God? Now, I started this sermon by talking to about this time in the wilderness, this gospel lesson is being about temptation. The temptation of Jesus. But of course, it's got to be more than that. Why does the Holy Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness? Last time I looked, the Spirit of God does not lead people into temptation to sin. Don't read the text that way. That's not what it says. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Period. It's only after that that temptation comes. There would be something terribly wrong with our belief in a loving God if it were God who tried to seduce us to do wrong. Of course not. God is holy good. A holy good can't want us to do something that's wrong. So why does Jesus make the journey in the wilderness? Well, we've already said it. It's a lot like why we do it. It's for clarification. It's for preparation. Temptation doesn't come from God, but it does come when we are trying to discover where God is. It's true for Jesus. It can also be true for us. God may not be the one doing the tempting us to do wrong, but God may certainly be the one that allows the temptation to happen. Why? Because sometimes it's only through life's struggles that we find ourselves in a better position to 
to really understand what life and God is about. Sometimes it's through the very act of our petitioning, praying, being open to God. We call that prayer, by the way. That opens us to being tested. Simply because we're trying to get closer to God. Every other time we see Jesus going out into the wilderness or up to the mountain, what is Jesus going to do? He's going to pray. Is it not logical that as Jesus is going out into the wilderness for these 40 days, that he's also going out there for communication with God? Sure. I mean, that makes sense, right? He's going out to clarify his role, who he's going to be, how he's going to act as a Messiah. Jesus is led by the Spirit in the wilderness to talk to and hear from God. I don't want to speak for anybody else but myself when it comes to these ideas of spiritual discipline. But if I'm honest with you, I have to say that my disciplined life of prayer doesn't come very easily. Oh, I know how to pray with people. I don't find it a bit difficult to stand alongside a hospital bed or in a meeting or here in church and pray. Praying out loud comes easily to me. Prayer in a crisis is when I feel most open to God, quite frankly. It's when I'm most real before God. But the discipline of prayer, that setting aside of an hour or more each day to engage in prayer, I don't do that very well. That's hard for me. Maybe it's because I get so caught up in the busyness of the day that I grow impatient with it. Is that the way some of you feel? I think it's also true for me that praying with someone feels much more real than when I'm by myself trying to talk and listen for God. I'm not trying to make an excuse here. I know that my prayer discipline needs work. Lots of work. And I can easily be made to feel guilty about it, so don't try that, please. I don't need to feel any more guilt than I already did. But as I thought about it, as we prepared for this Lenten series, I began to realize that maybe I'm not really thinking about prayer Maybe I've been way too narrow in my understanding of prayer. You see, when I think about prayer, and I suspect when you think about prayer, I think about Talking. Now, to be honest, I like to talk. I'm pretty good at talking. I like conversation. I like teaching classes. I actually like preaching pretty well. Asking my opinion about anything, I'm apt to tell you. Be real careful. I love to talk. But I'm finally, maybe, maybe discovering that prayer has an element that's a lot bigger than me. In my ability to verbalize. 
In fact, I'm beginning to think that my ability to talk is my greatest weakness in prayer. Sometimes I think, sometimes I think that maybe God is just saying, shut up. Listen. Do you think that Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness, not eating, undergoing temptation, do you think he's talking the whole time? No. That's not logical. It's not what the Bible says. And yet, clearly, we know that Jesus spending time out there by himself is engaging in prayer. Think about being with somebody you love. Talking is a good thing. We all agree, right? But sometimes the deepest relationships are built not on conversation, but that just being. That simple process of being together. People who have been successful at that can not only finish each other's sentences, they know from a look what the other one's thinking. You've experienced that, right? At least some of you have. Again, I think my problem with my discipline of prayer is I talk too much. Like, I think sometimes God says, shut up, listen, meditate, let me direct your thoughts. Did you listen to the epistle lessons for the day? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Now, the prayers fits into a much larger element in the early church. Let's see. They were taught, and they fellowshiped, and they broke bread. That's in reference to communion. And then they prayed. There's several things going on. And then you hear language like rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances. Paul loves to start his letters with things like, I'm praying constantly. Now, is that just so much hyperbole? Is Paul exaggerating? I mean, sometimes we exaggerate when we talk in order to prove a point. Now, I will tell you, if prayer is just talking, then I suspect Paul is exaggerating. Because I don't think Paul had time to talk all the time. He was pretty busy, you know, dictating these things we call letters, business. It took some time to do that. But then knowing what we know about the Apostle Paul, I'm not sure that he was much given to exaggeration. That doesn't sound like he does. So what do we have here? Either Paul is overstating his position, or clearly he means that prayer is more than bowing your head and folding your hands and saying something. Right? Of course Paul prayed in that way. Aloud and in his thoughts. But prayer discipline is always deeper than that. That's what Paul and the other New Testament Christians, that's why they can write so openly about this continuous 
nature of prayer. I pray for you always. Doesn't mean I'm talking always. Prayer is not a moment of conscious thought. Maybe it's more a stream of consciousness about God who is always close and always seeking to communicate back to us. And then I realize, well, that's the kind of prayer life I really want to have. The kind of prayer life where in every moment I understand that God is there, not just listening, but talking back to me. That's the kind of consciousness prayer I would cover for a congregation. Many of you know the session just returned a week ago from a retreat and from hearing a report from the visioning committee. Tonight they will formally receive and will vote on those recommendations and they'll adopt some, hopefully all of them. You've heard me say before, I never want to predict what a session will do. That's a bad practice. But I can almost guarantee you that tonight, session is going to approve a commitment to pray. Now, why can I guarantee that? Because, like you, session does prayers to life, blood of the church. Of individual Christians, what session member would not approve prayer for heaven's sakes? Of course they will. How will it all play out? I don't know. I can tell you some of the things that will happen. You're sitting here listening to a sermon about prayer, and that's one of the things that will happen. There will be others, I assure you. Maybe you'll hear something today that will help. Some of you, when you came in and found these things in your seats, you figured out what they are yet? These are magnets. Refrigerator magnets. Where else do we put all our notes? Your prayer team is developed. If you didn't get one in your seat, they're outside. You can pick them up. Once a month or more often, you go get a card and go with it. And go on your refrigerator like this to remind you of one of the prayer concerns of the church. Now, would you think about talking to God about it? Think about investing your mental life with it. Maybe that's the deeper part of prayer. The Linden series is called Overflow. Isn't that really what we want from life? For the Spirit of God to overflow in us? Well, if it is, it's going to start when we begin to more deeply develop this sense of prayer. God, who is in us already, talking with us, sometimes saying, shut up, listen. Talking to the people who are around us. Speaking down deep in our hearts in ways we've not listened to before. Maybe that's where it starts. Now, I can tell you this, I don't want to scare you. This is pretty much a given. If Jesus goes into the wilderness to pray and find his temptation, 
my suspicion is that if you make a commitment to deepen your prayer life with God, you're going to find some of that same kind of temptation. Oh, we won't be like Jesus. You're not going to take the pinnacle of the temple. I don't think that's going to happen to you either. But you don't want that to be. But I suspect the temptations will come something like, you know, you're not very good at prayer. Why are you bothering with this? That little nagging voice. Or maybe the little voice will say, you're too busy for this. Let somebody else do it. Or maybe the little voice will say, you don't know how prayer works. You don't even know if prayer works. Why are you bothering with this? Or maybe something else. Don't be surprised. When we try to draw closer to God as God tries to draw closer to us, we too find those moments of temptation of trial. God has always been present. And he's also present in these. If we want abundant life, it doesn't come easily. It comes because we desire it more than we desire anything else. If we want life overflowing, we have to want it bad enough to be willing to put up with negative thoughts that come our way. And so my challenge to you on first Sunday in Lent is to let God's Spirit overflow. Fill you up, spill out on the sides, make you happier in ways that you've ever known, and at the same time, you'll know some temptation. You'll know some trial. And you'll know that God is there in the midst of every bit of that. Sometimes you'll fail. Know that too. So God is always there to bring you back, to pick you up, and to set you on the path again. This is not about being perfect. It's about growing our life of faith and prayer together. Because the one who we love is not going to leave you alone. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <clears throat>